Welcome back to the Gator Maven podcast, powered by Sports Illustrated, covering your Florida Gators. I'm your host, Zach Goodall. Make sure to throw me a follow on Twitter, at Zach underscore Goodall, as well as my co-host, Graham Marsh. You can find him at Graham Marsh UF. And last but not least, of course, make sure to follow the Gator Maven handle, at Gator Maven SI. You can now find Gator Maven on Sports Illustrated's website. If you go to SI.com and click the Team tab and go down to NCAA Football, you can scroll down. They've got a site for every team, and you'll find the Florida Gators. And clicking on the Florida Gators will redirect you right to our homepage. So I've got to say, that's pretty much a dream come true to see you know my name being linked right there to Sports Illustrated. I'm sure Graham's as well. I mean, that's such a huge accomplishment for us. Huge for the site. It's going to help us a ton with you know building our credibility and becoming a premium outlet for all Florida Gator fans. So pretty cool. You might want to go check that out. And of course, don't forget to bookmark and follow the site as well. We're going to be breaking down a little bit of what we saw this past week against Miami. I know we're a bit removed from it now, uh, but more looking at it as we go into the rest of this 2019 season. So we'll be talking about Felipe Franks. I know Graham's got something he really wants to talk about. We hinted it at um, on the timeline the other night. Uh, the safeties, as that was obviously a bit of a polarizing group this past week, as well as just the defense in general. We're going to talk about the positives and the negatives. Uh, Graham has a couple of things that he wants to say about his favorite player on the roster, Tommy Townsend. And uh, just, sure, baby. yeah, I mean, punters are people too. So with that being said, we'll just go ahead and get right into it. Graham, there was a clip that came about this past week from Barstool on a podcast they were doing about Felipe oh. Franks. And it really, yeah, so, it, it really, so it, it really, it really triggered you. <laughs> Yeah, um, I was not a fan of it. So it was uh, the Unnecessary Roughness podcast um, hosted by Case Smith, K-A-Y-C-E. Gee, what a weird name. (laughs) Yeah, and Brandon Walker. So that's Brandon Walker at BWalkerSEC on Twitter, and then Casey Smith at Casey Smith. Pretty much they were just – it was a couple nights ago – before all the Thursday night games happen. So still the only game really to talk about Florida game. That's really probably the only reason they were even talking about Florida. They were pretty much just ripping Franks and, and listen, he left a lot to be desired, but um, before before you go further into that, let's go ahead and roll that clip. Everybody in the world knows and believes that he stinks except for Felipe Franks. He's the only guy in the world that thinks he doesn't stink. He stinks. I think he might have spent the offseason getting worse. But there were flashes from him. Obviously, that 65-yard bomb he threw. There are flashes where it's like, okay, he has it in him, but then he turns around and acts like an asshole on the sidelines and then goes and throws the interception. And the thing is, is he's been benched, what, three times, five times the last three years, whatever the number is. He stinks. Yeah, so my, my, my first problem is Brandon Walker says at the beginning of the clip, he says in the world that doesn't think Felipe Franks stinks is Felipe Franks and literally ever met a Gator fan ever. (laughs) But like, if you were to talk to literally any Gator fan, almost any Gator fan, like probably estimate is, you know, no less than 80% of the fan base, incredibly high on Franks. 
going into the offseason and say that the only person that thinks Felipe Franks is good is him. But it's just not true. No, it's not true at all. I mean, even, been, even questions after, constantly. And after a performance against Miami where he definitely left a lot to be desired, that's just absurd to say that literally he's the only person in the world that thinks he's good. Because a lot of people think he's good. And there, listen, there were tons of rankings, quarterback rankings before the season, and pretty much all of them had him in the top five. I mean, listen, in, in the SEC, who do you have that's sure ahead of Franks? Tua and Jake Fromm. That's it. And not if you're PFF. PFF's got not, PFF's got seven guys ahead of him. <laughs> they got not, Joe, not if you're PFF. Yeah, they got Joe Burrow. They've got Kellen Mond. They've got uh, uh, Jake Bentley from South Carolina. Uh, so ridiculous. Yeah. So that that. I was not really a fan of those rankings. They also had guys like Jacob Eason ahead of him on the total list, which he hasn't played a snap in like two years. Yeah, and and the last time he did play against Florida, Florida kicked his ass. That yeah, should be, that should be noted. I mean, Felipe wasn't Felipe was a red shirt at the time, but still, Florida kicked, Luke Del Rio kicked his ass. If that tells you anything, so I actually like Jacob Eason, but I, I think. When he's proven literally nothing, you can't say that he's better than at a ridiculously good four-game stretch. I get it. It's only four games of the 2018 season. But it was still an absurdly good four-game stretch against rivals in Florida State. And, and again, I get it. Florida State wasn't any good last year. But still, you go up to Tallahassee and you kick their ass. Go against Michigan, who had but still a really good defense. And to play like he did against them, I, I've said it multiple times now. Um, yeah, Felipe didn't have an incredible game. He didn't. He left a lot to be desired. Both of his interceptions, in my opinion, were his fault. Some people think that the first one was Freddie Swain's, but uh, in both, both of his interceptions, in, in my opinion, were his fault, and especially the second one. Everyone agrees that the second one was pretty bad. Everyone agrees the second one was pretty inexcusable. And then the fumble debate, was it Piran's fault? Was it Frank's? Was it yada, yada, yada? That, that one's kind of more up for debate. Again, wasn't a great game, but he, he showed flashes like he always does. And, and to credit Casey Smith, she did say that he shows flashes. She goes and, and rips him and says, th- this is the most abysmal part of the video. She says... I think he spent the offseason getting worse. <laughs> okay, there's there's a couple things to that. There, there's a lot to unpack there. Okay. He spent the whole offseason getting worse. Then he clearly has done a phenomenal job of hiding it in practice. I get it. It's practice. It's not the game. But he's looked damn good in practice. Like, really good. A bad game. But, like, you can't say based off of one game, the first game of the year, against a really good front seven. Like, that, I just don't see how that correlates. Like, okay, teen... He played well. First game, 2019, he didn't play well. So that means that must mean that he spent the whole offseason getting worse. That's just ridiculous. And so if we're going to say that, one touchdown, two interception, 168-yard Trevor Lawrence against Georgia Tech got worse, and I would argue Felipe played a better game against Miami, which has a better defense than Georgia Tech, than Trevor Lawrence did on Thursday night. I think I would agree with that. And I yeah, think, and, and I think the worst part of her argument saying that 
it looks like he's gotten worse. She pretty much unknowingly praised him the sentence prior or whatever the exact timing was where she said, look, he had flashes, including that 65 yard bomb, but he got worse. The the context of that 65 yard bomb is actually something I wrote about this past week. And Dan Mullen even, you know, praised it on Wednesday at his press conference. How often in 2018, 2017, or any point in his career up until right now, does Felipe Franks bounce back from throwing an interception with confidence and throwing what's arguably one of the best passes of his career? Uh, yeah. Does that, that never, ever happen? That's not something anyone would ever expect to happen with Felipe Franks. So people were expecting him to have grown this year and becoming a more overall just consistent quarterback, elevating his game. Listen, I don't think that that was ever going to happen at the expectation that some people believed it. And rather, the true growth that we've seen is the confidence. You know, maybe maybe the Barstool dude, and I'm blanking on his name, but maybe he has a point where he says Felipe Franks is the only guy that thinks Felipe Franks is good. But that's a good problem to have when you're a quarterback. To have a really good confidence problem to have, I would agree. And that's exactly where he's grown. Instead of getting worse, that's exactly where he's grown. Because in the past, if he throws an interception, it it all went to his head and he fell apart. This time around, he throws one of the best passes of his career. And as Mullen said, he accounted for every single yard on the game-winning touchdown drive. One snap removed from throwing a pretty bad interception that typically would have sealed the game for Florida in the past. Yeah, and um, again, this is a thing that wouldn't know because they they just pretend to know anything about Florida and when they haven't watched anything probably since the 2017 Michigan game the first game he ever started they probably just watched those two games and that's like all the Felipe Franks they've ever seen and just assume he's bad I mean if you actually track Gator football seen last year this is a dude who's been through freaking everything man was benched four times really only once that's significant because, and the reason it's the only one that's significant is because he was benched against Missouri in 2018, the only one that actually matters, because it was against Missouri, and it was the only one where Dan Mullen was here. The benchings were all in 2017 under Jim McElwain. McElwain had a pretty bad history of, like, you know, have a bad quarter and get benched. Like, he would not let you stay in there and grow and get better. And that's one thing that I've loved about Mullen and what he's done with Franks, he had some rough moments last year. Mullen said, hey, you know, stay in there, keep your head in it. And he grew a lot in that. He grew a ton. And sorry, because he was just playing horrendously bad. It was kind of it was kind of 2017-esque. Every Gator fan, I'm sure, has tried to block that game out of their memory. Again, in my opinion, that's probably the worst game of his career, but it's kind of just like a weird fluke out of 2018 bad games in 2018 he usually did enough to win the last four games of the year like we've talked about he played absurdly good um have that mental strength to come back you you saw against Kentucky last year he had a similar game he threw a late game interception that was a really bad interception he was pretty much toast after that the thought that we would come back and win against Kentucky was an afterthought like the game was over there was no chance at interception the one that went off freddie swain's hands 
the defense bails you out there for him to step in there and deliver that throw to Hammett. That's an NFL throw. Oh my God. Yeah. That's an NFL uh, throw. Like, like in my limited, you know, time covering the Gators, I have watched, I obviously watched them whenever they would be on TV prior to covering them. So I would see Frank's, you know, occasionally flashing that wonderful arm that he is capable of making good throws with. But like, that that pass stood out to me as the best of his career without thinking about the Tennessee game a couple years prior. So it's probably number two when I really think about it. But like, I think it's, it's number three. It's oh, what what would number two be then? Number two is his touchdown throw to Freddie Swain last year. It was ridiculously impressive. It was a missile. In which um, game was that? It was against Georgia. Okay, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah I remember that. Okay, that yeah, to me yeah. is probably his second best throw, and then Hammond is three in my opinion. But those, but those three throws put in that echelon immediately. Those three throws are like tier you know, one. If you're Felipe, tier one. If you're Felipe and you're wanting to cut up a highlight video of yourself to show to NFL scouts and say this is why you draft me, those three plays are the first three plays you show them. Yeah, because that's. I mean, there's a lot of clutch factor within the those couple of clips as well, which is a whole other animal towards you know his projection as an NFL type of guy. Oh yeah, for sure. And what's interesting is actually all three of those games, you would watch the whole thing and say, yeah, Felipe didn't play particularly well, but he made the best three throws of his career all in the second half. That, that is an interesting little nugget to talk about is, is just how, how he's able to do that. It's kind of a weird thing. Like Felipe Franks is definitely a roller coaster ride of a quarterback to, to cheer for if you're a Gator fan. Well, we've spent a good amount of time talking about Franks, and I mean, I think our takes are pretty much consistent. Like, he's got to do more, but he also did a lot more, essentially, than what he's shown in the past. His confidence is up, and I think that that's probably the most important thing for him going forward. Now, yeah, just just a really quick uh, kind of last last nugget of, of Franks. He can have bad games and still make the three to four plays he has to. That's what he showed me against Miami. Yeah, absolutely, and that, that that's that's so key and a true testament to like the development course that they've had him on. Absolutely. So let's move it over towards the defensive side of the ball because uh, there were a lot of positives. Obviously, like how can you be upset with a ten sack performance from a defense? And you know, I thought they I, I thought they did really well, but there's definitely. Concerns on the back end at safety, too. Now, Brad Stewart, when I was at practice the other day, he had shed his red non-contact jersey. It's pretty safe to assume he was wearing that last week because of the suspension that he got handed on Saturday. Um, now it's the bye week. Maybe they'll put him back in it next week and he can have another week. I'm not sure yet. Obviously, that's all unconfirmed until they confirm a suspension on game day. Um, but if he is back, that's going to you know totally change the perception of the safeties because they were certainly the weak link in this pa- this defense on Saturday. Oh my God. Yes. And it wasn't really even in the past defense. It was just tackling. Oh my goodness. Abysmal mm-hmm. man. It's like, good Lord. I, if anybody that was slightly big, Jaywan Taylor wanted no part of that whatsoever. Yeah. It, when Davis was on the field, it was like, there were still some really bad angles coming from him, but when he made contact, I thought he was, yeah, I thought he did better than the other two. 
I totally agree. And Sean Davis, as I've seen a couple times in his career, in the limited action he's gotten to play, I think Sean Davis should be in there more, has had a couple times in his career where he's gotten run over. But even when he gets run over, he makes the tackle. Right. Really what I care about, man, especially in the open field as a safety. You know, I'm not – it's pretty rare that it's going to be like a situation where you need to like truck him backwards and keep him from hitting that line. If the running back gets past the front seven and he's in the open field, I don't care if you get run over and he gets an extra two yards or something. Just bring him down. Keep a nine-yard gain from becoming a 55-yard gain or something. And they were unable to do that against DJ Dallas. DJ Dallas, what I saw more than anything, he wanted it more than, than Florida's DBs did in the back. Like, tweeted about this yesterday. Rewatching the game, Benny Snell when Florida played Kentucky. Benny Snell is better than DJ Dallas, but he's a similar runner. Both of them slow, but they don't have this breakaway speed. More downhill power guys. But weirdly enough, both of those power guys, what would, what would often happen, and this happened in the Miami game time and time and time again, Miami would call a draw play for him right up the middle. There'd be nothing there. The defensive line would get good penetration. He could bounce it outside and, you know, you know, stiff arm a corner, stiff arm a safety, and before you know it, he's 30 yards down the field. Where, where is the wrapping up here? And again, it's like, I don't care if you get run over, just bring him down. Yeah, so, there were there were a lot of there were a lot of times where they were leading with shoulders, and that's just how you fly off like a freaking helicopter. Yeah, if you're if you're going against a, a big running back like that, just launching a shoulder into him is probably not gonna work. Right. Like you need you need arms, man. So I have and I've tweeted this out that I like the idea of maybe Trey Dean getting safety snaps or something like that. But then I really started to think about the best way they can utilize their personnel at this point after the breakout from Ventrell Miller, which is another thing I wrote about and something we've talked about is like we don't really know where that performance you know came from. Like we expected him to be a contributing player, but no one saw him coming in and pretty much becoming the starter over Amari Bernie in week zero. Um, Bernie barely played. He, he played some on the first drive. Then a little bit later on, on some pass downs later in the game, he played at money. Otherwise, he was getting star reps when he was on the field, and it was pretty yeah. sparingly. So with that emergence from Ventrell, I immediately think maybe we should keep Dean at star full-time rather than having him and Bernie splitting reps out there. And take Bernie and put him back where he used to play at safety. Because when he was out there, like, he's out there and he's a big dude now. Like, he's bigger than he was when he originally was playing safety. He's put on some weight. So he's not a guy that you're going to want to have, you know, if they run any cover three looks and they've got a single high safety. Bernie's not going to be the guy that you want back there at 225 pounds or whatever he's at at this point. Uh, That's a thing that, you know, maybe you do have... Dean back there on occasion or when Brad Stort's back that's a great role for Brad Stort to be in but if you put Bernie at strong safety and have him come down and you know when they're closing fronts and putting guys in the box you move Bernie down and I thought his angling during the game when he made a couple of plays where he was like forced to break down and come back and angle himself against a runner when he was on the field sparingly I thought he did that really well and he did it like a linebacker instead of a DB. Yeah, exactly. So he's obviously got the idea of coverage under his belt being a former safety. That's an that's a given. That's something that we're expecting 
from him when he's playing money is to do a better job in coverage than Voshan Joseph did in the past. But yeah, and real quick, real quick, sorry to interrupt you. Oh, you're good. Um, Amari Bernie is 225 pounds, 220. Who's 220? And DJ Dallas. Yeah, exactly. So, so like, obviously this game's in the past now, but you're talking about if Amari Bernie got more reps at safety, you're talking about adding more weight back there, adding more beef to counteract his size. And I can't help but think the tackling in the open field would have been much better, especially against a team like Miami, who's going to rely on the running game and isn't going to throw the ball that much. And the size thing is definitely important and a key part of it. Obviously, like I said, that's not someone you trust going sideline to sideline as a deep safety at that weight. Just that's just I mean, that's not something you'd ask of him. But you also think of it beyond size. And what's he been working on this entire offseason playing linebacker? What's one of the most important aspects of playing linebacker? It's keying and diagnosing the run game in order to understand what gaps to shoot in order to make a play in the backfield or near the line of scrimmage against the run game or as a pass rusher. That's one of the most important aspects of the linebacker position. So, And, and that, something that, that you said earlier that I thought was really important and profound. In the open field, if you take a bad angle, you're toast. And it's kind of funny because when there's more traffic, someone might be able to help you out. In the open field, if, if the running back gets 10 yards downfield and you take a bad angle, he's making you miss. He's getting downfield. Like mm-hmm. there's, there's not much else to it. Something about Bernie's reps at safety and what that would look like because obviously he's not a sideline-to-sideline pass defender. You're 100% right. Teams that Florida plays this year where I think you're genuinely concerned about a deep threat passing game. SEC, the SEC East, we have – you know, some deep backs that you're particularly worried about. Right. Terrified of Jarrett Garantano tear you up for 300 yards? Not really. The the only, really the only team I can think of that Florida plays right now where pass coverage would, would really screw Florida is, is Georgia. I mean, Fromm from would torch him. And I think Joe, that, I think Joe Burrow might do a decent job. I, I mean, yeah, you're right. I, I'm you're not right. overly high on him, but I know that they've got some vertical concepts within that offense because of the speed that they consistently have at receiver. But like if if you're beyond Jake Fromm, if the guy you're most worried about is Joe Burrow, then I think you're pretty solid. And you know, we'll see how um James Blackman is at Florida State. Maybe maybe him if he becomes pretty good later on in the year then maybe worry about with Amari Bernie. Um but, but again, like we've just said, you're not talking about a long list of elite QBs Florida has to face. Right. You could put Amari Bernie back there if it helps the tackling out quite a bit and and be okay. And he'd still obviously help. I mean, when they've got, you know, whether it's their nickel packages and they've got two deep safeties, that cuts out half the field for him to worry about too. So I do think he'd still be capable just making it a little more confined at safety. But yeah, I mean, I think the most important part is his previous experience at safety and you pair it with the training he's done at linebacker should make them actually really comfortable to put him back at safety if that's ultimately what they decide to do or if it's something that they need to do, which I have a feeling it is. Um, and you'll see those angling and tackling issues cut down dramatically. And it makes me think, you know, I really like the idea of pairing Bernie's physicality and, you know, what he's learned as a linebacker and as a tackler paired with a guy as rangy as Brad Stewart once he's in the lineup. 
Yeah, so is this just a really complicated way of us saying that Bernie's too athletic and too good to not be on the field? Yeah, ab- oh, absolutely. I mean, when he was on the field sparingly, he still made plays. Like, I mean, he caused the first fumble of the game. Yeah, exactly. And that was a perfect read and reaction after he dropped deep a little bit to come down and make a key stop on a third down. Like More than anything, you know why he was able to make that play? What's that? He had a good angle on the running back. Mm-hmm. And it was open field, too. I mean, not in the open field. Exactly. Yeah, it's it, it was it's the perfect example for this argument is like his first action at linebacker this year is would perfect. Would, would, his Start fir- with his first action at linebacker. His first action at linebacker is like literally the perfect play that could let him transition back to safety. Like it, it shows everything <laughs> that you need to see. He's got what Florida is lacking at safety right now. So, I mean, I think, we, I think we're both in, in pretty full agreement on that. In which case, we can, uh, we can talk about a couple more of the positives, uh, and then we'll move on to your favorite topic, Tommy Townsend, and wrap things up. But, oh, can't wait. <laughs> but I think, you know, we'll touch on it really quickly. The pass rush, man, 10 sacks. Like, I don't care who you're going against. Like, remember – I mean, obviously you remember this, but Jacksonville against Houston when they had 10 sacks, like, yeah, they were going up against a trash offensive line, but like 10 sacks is monumental. And it's not like Jacksonville slowed down after that, even against better competition. Like that, that is a pace that a line sets and they continue to follow it. Like that's just how it's going to be. And I was super, super impressed by John Greenard coming in and playing at Buck. Oh my I mean, like, uh, Chai Polite who at this point? Or exactly. Talk about a force, man. Like, it's just, th- that was incredible play. It elevated the play of the defensive tackles um, because Zuniga and Grenard demanded respect on both edges, and that allowed Campbell and Schuler and the occasional play from Zach Carter, Marlon Dunlap Jr. to come in and have a sack, like, it opened up so much for the entire pass rush, much, much less when they, you know, brought out packages with Jeremiah Moon as well, or they brought Trey Dean after it, or the occasional outside blitz. Like, it opens up so much. I think this is, like, Todd Grantham's dream front four, front five at this point, and we're going to see a lot more come of it. I totally agree. And to kind of go back to your Jags example... So that game, that was the first game of the year against 2017. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and yeah, I vividly remember that. I knew exactly what game you were talking about when you mentioned <laughs> that Dante Fowler got the uh, the recovery for a touchdown. And that was Deshaun Watson's first game, actually. He came in. Typically, if a team gets 10 sacks, you think the scoreline is going to be pretty be a route, right? I mean, it was not that way. Because, like, the Jaguars, when they got 10 sacks, won the game 29-7. to With Florida kind of balances out the sacks if you turn the ball over four times. So I thought it was interesting because things that can neutralize some of your mistakes. Florida did a terrible job of not only turning the ball over, but turning the ball over in key field position. Gave Miami excellent field position in three of those turnovers. What those sacks are able to do is neutralize that good field position. Right. You You start the ball first and 10, on Florida's, you know, 35 or 40, it's, you know, third and 20 on the 50. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so 
you're going to get in field goal range anymore. So, so those sacks, I think, saved the game. And think about when Florida's, you know, once they, like you, like we've made a point of, this is the first game. Of course, Franks wasn't going to come out and play perfectly, like Trevor Lawrence, like the, like the example you made. So imagine when, not if, but when things really start to clean up for Florida's offense, and then you pair it with what they were able to get out of this pass rush. It's like, it's scary to think about. I, I, I don't, I don't want to get too optimistic, but that is like a perfect situation of balance on offense paired with, you know, a super aggressive defense that can just wreak havoc. Something that's interesting is all the sacks came off of blitzes. There were multiple times where Florida got in the backfield and not just hurried Jaron Williams, but made the sack only rushing four to every time they blitzed Jaron Williams or forced a bad throw. Only rushing four backfield quite a bit and even made the sack quite a bit only rushing four. And then every time they blitzed, uh, they pretty much forced Jaron Williams into a terrible throw or to just throw it away almost every time. Um, interesting is like i was just talking about with the turnovers and 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 that really will be just you know something critical for this team moving forward but you can't have asked for a better performance from that group so not to mention like people were saying a lot of you know the the critical fans and the non-florida fans are saying oh well line is young and they're not very good okay well florida's offensive line is young against a really good front seven and they did a pretty good job they did a good job Check so it's out, like that's check not out. an excuse. If, and and I mean, listen, having a sloppy game, like you can use that as an excuse, but 10 sacks, that's because Florida's defensive line is really damn good. Speaking of off- the uh, Florida Gators' offensive line, uh, if, you haven't, if you're listening to this and haven't checked it out yet, make sure to make your way over to Gator Maven. Uh, I've got a film room profile with 15 clips up from the game and their performance against the, off- uh, the Miami Hurricanes pass rushing defensive line. I, I do I, I do think that they did a really good job. I went back, I watched each rep, and I took 15 clips to kind of highlight you know positives and negatives for each player. Um, Chris Blake's going to be a damn good right guard. I, I, I he, he honestly might have been my favorite player on the line the entire game. Just say real quick, shout out to Zach for liking to study offensive line tape. <laughs> I, I think, I, I, I think I, that if I had to sit there and study the offensive line and clip 15 plays of each guy, I think that I would fall asleep doing that. It's low key kind uh, of fun. You, you you get used to it uh, over time. I'm all here. I'm all here for the skill position film room story. <laughs> but, but when we're talking, and even the even the the defensive line, because at least they go after people. But the offensive line, man that up the rest of and that we cover this beat you know have at it i'll, I'll get some receivers and, and running backs. yeah uh it, it I, goes, will trust, it, I will trust all your offensive line takes you it, you watch more film than i've ever thought about watching, so. <laughs> it goes back to when i covered the jags uh because every i mean every year the talk was one of the jags going to draft an offensive lineman it's got to be before the end of day two of the draft so I would watch as many offensive linemen projected to go in that range and study them and try to determine best fit. But the worst part about it is like Jacksonville never ended up taking an offensive lineman. 
Like, they, they finally did with Jawan this past year, but I couldn't think of a time they drafted an offensive uh, – and Will Richardson the year before, but that was a day three pick. So, yeah. like, I can't remember the last time the Jaguars took an offensive lineman on the first two days of the draft, despite my year-in and year-out observations of college offensive line draft prospects. So oh, it, really, some, it really made me humble about watching this. Some respect on – Mr. Out of the League now, Luke Jokel. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I, I, I don't even like to think about it. To get back to the Florida offensive line, I will do our best to not get on Jags tangents, but... Yeah, it, it's hard sometimes. Here. Especially with Zach, because Zach has oddly a amount of Jags film. <laughs> how how Zach could, could put himself through re-watching some of those Jags games is admirable media things I've ever seen in my life. But um, you look at it, you say, okay, this offensive line heading into this game returned one starter. Um, but as Zach said, uh, you know, Chris Blake, um, can you just like kind of dive in, like maybe not go too into detail, but just kind of give me like a little bit of a synopsis for why Chris Blake played so well. Cause like I I've never watched any of the plays and keyed in on him. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I don't want to give too much away if people are listening and they haven't seen it. I really want you to check out the film room. So make sure to check that out in each play, but it, it sucks that Blake is the guy that probably ends up taking credit for allowing the sack. Um, it was a delayed blitz. He was looking for a responsibility on the other side and Frank's rolled out to the right. <coughs> and you know, a six, four, or whatever, three hundred twenty-pound guy probably isn't going to catch up to, uh, dude in his two hundred-ish pounds rushing the passer at full, full speed, in space. Like it's just not going to happen. So he'll go down with the credit on the sack, but it's not like he did something disastrous to allow it. It was just out in space, and it was a athletic matchup that he probably couldn't catch up with at that point. But otherwise, Football focus will kill him for it in like three years when he's looking to get drafted. Absolutely. <laughs> but everything else, I thought he did a really good job at. He had a couple of pancake blocks. Like there was one earlier in the game against a delayed blitz and an edge rusher came off the stunted to his side of the ball from lining up on the outside of Forsyth. So he covered some ground and. You know, this is a play of, that displayed Blake's vision, which he showed several times during the game, how he had really disciplined vision and processing. For a redshirt freshman in your first game, and one of the things that stand out most is your mental processing, that is a great attribute to have. Because that opens up so much if you have a true understanding of your responsibilities and can, you know, trust what your eyes see ahead of you rather than, you know, you know maybe being a little timid Uh not striving to do something great and just, you know, doing the bare minimum of getting through your responsibilities. And when he was able to initiate power in space, like you were done. There was a play where Scott Patchen tried to stunt inside and Blake was, you know, he was kind of confined between Buchanan and Delance on the, you know, on his opposite shoulders. He couldn't really move side to side much or forward or backwards much. Cause he had to wait and allow Patchen to pursue the stunt. But as soon as Patchen, you know, made his way towards Blake, Blake got low and just popped him up so vertically that he lost all power in his rush and was completely washed out of the play. And there was no space for Blake to try and create that power. It was just natural lower body power. So there were there were intangibles to his play, uh, you know, the power that he packs from his core, 
his hand usage I thought was really solid. Um, Yo, can I say something really quick? That's, yeah. That I think is kind of interesting. Yeah. Of you recruiting junkies out there, like when he came out in 2017, or when he came out in 2018, um, he committed in 2017, 158th ranked player. So those of y'all that are freaking out, like, oh my God, Georgia's recruiting everyone. You know, they're going to run the world for 10 years. Just pump the brakes a little bit. Guys like Chris Blake, again, we're only one game in, but he's going to be really good. But damn, his tape looked good, according to Zach. Mm-hmm. It's like a diamond in the rough, almost, when it comes to recruiting. Yeah, it's a diamond in the rough. And if anyone's good at finding diamonds in the rough, my God, is a John Hevesy. And, and, and I think that that's truly a testament to Hevesy for – I mean, this line as a whole, you know, allowing one sack against Miami is a feat. I don't care who you are. Um, But to come in with four new starters and play the way they did, even though they weren't perfect, but to see progressions from a lot of the guys, especially in the run game, I thought that they did a good job run blocking and executing assignments. It's just, what are you going to do against Miami? And that front seven, like, they're going to stop the run. Even the best running teams, like, Miami's going to do a good job containing them. And yet, you know, Florida didn't run the ball that often. P. Ryan had 10 carries on the night as the workhorse back. Like, it's just. And I think that's where this offensive line, I think that's where the offensive line needs to improve is the run blocking. Well, I still think that, I still think they, I think they executed their assignments well. There's more that they can bring to it. But for the, for the first time as a unit, I do think that they did at least what they needed to do to help try and get some push out of the run game. It's just going to take more of a group effort and, you know, things will start to click more as they continue to grow. Right. So the offensive line is similar to addition that we can be critical of on this team. It's true for Felipe Franks. This is true for the offensive line. This is true for the safeties. It is very possible based on, a week early based on the fact that the good front seven based on the fact that it's a neutral site rivalry game they play every five years based on the type of mistakes they made possible that for all three of those groups that we've broken down today it could be their worst game of the entire year the miami game could be their worst game of the entire year the worst they play then florida's in for a really really good season Absolutely. That's my kind of optimistic view. But, I'm, but I mean, I really feel that way. I really feel, especially with Franks and the offensive line, the offensive line has so much room to grow, so much room to grow, and they still played fairly well. Again, like we just said, against a really good front seven. Yeah, exactly. Uh, if, you're, if your takeaway is that you're really concerned about this line following that game, then... I, I don't know. I mean, you're you're just you're banging your drum from the past off season. I, I think they showed enough to that to to instill some confidence going forward. You're, you want to see more, of course. It's game. It was the first game of the year, but it was a great start. I I, I really think it was a great start, and they're going to shake off some rust and you know iron things out. But it was a good start. Totally agree. And let's not forget that between this week, it's UT Martin. And the next week of practice, you really have three full weeks contest against Kentucky in Lexington. It's almost like you get more camp. The next two weeks is just extra camp to fine-tune stuff, 
tackling, to to work on ball security. You, you get really two full weeks now because you play UT Martin. You, you don't game plan super heavily for UT Martin. I'm sorry. Nothing against the Skyhawks. Man, like, that, that's no way to talk about Mandarin High School legend Darian Oxendine, who's going to play receiver for him this year. No, I know. I, I need to put some put some respect on their name. <laughs> um, but um, really get two full weeks, like I said, to really just have like extra weeks of camp almost to, again, fine-tune the stuff that desperately needs fine-tuning. And then you get a full week to – know based on last year's game against Kentucky in a weird way is one of the biggest games of Mullins young UF career so far I don't know how else to put it he can't lose that game he just can't like there's there's Gator fans will will be falling if Florida loses that game to Kentucky as early in the year as it is even though there'd be plenty of time to, you know, still win the East or come in second in the East, which I think most people predict Florida to do, as somebody who has grown up around Gator fans his entire life, as someone who has grown up accustomed to just smacking Kentucky year in and year out, have to go up to Lexington and win. There's uh, there's no ifs ands or buts about it, and that's something that I'm really getting going to be looking forward to previewing. Um, Honestly, probably start on next week's pod, too, because, like you said, who is UT Martin? Uh, we, we've gone a little long today, so we're going to wrap it up with something that I know is going to make Graham very excited to talk about. Of course. Punter Tommy Townsend. Just give me g- j- just, just, just give me it. Just let it all out. Tommy has, in two games in his UF career, and, and I wrote about this in my piece um, yesterday, specialist spotlight. Uh, the Vanderbilt game last year, and then this Miami game. I genuinely look at it and say, if Tommy Townsend doesn't make this play, Florida doesn't win. I guarantee you Florida wins without that fake punt in which Kadarius Tony scores the touchdown, the 66-yard touchdown the next play. There's a lot of what-ifs there, but I mean, we don't know for sure that Florida wins that game without that Tommy Townsend fake. And, and I think an interesting, another interesting thing to talk about is the fact that a particularly great angle to reach that first down, but he's an athlete, man. He played safety in high school. I talked about this in my piece. He played safety in high school at Boone in at Boone high school in Orlando. He's clearly played a skill position before. So like, like I, I thought that was impressive. And then last year, huge fourth down pickup against Vanderbilt. That same drive, Van Jefferson caught a slant route and took it to the house. And every all night, Tommy's punts were really good. Like I, I think it can't be discounted how much of a difference Tommy Townsend is. He's not your typical punter. No, I, 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 yeah, I, I punters are people too. That's that's one thing that I do stand by. I've never thought I've never seen myself like you say about going into watching offensive line. I've never seen myself getting excited over a punter breakdown, but I do think Florida's got themselves a really entertaining punter and one that's damn good at what he does. He doesn't win the Ray guy award. I'm suing the NCAA. <laughs> so, I mean, not to be dramatic or anything, but. But, but, but yeah, uh, he better freaking win it. 
Well, I think that should just about do it for today's episode of the Gator Maven podcast. If you guys haven't already, make sure to subscribe. You can find us right now over at Spotify, on Google Podcasts. You can listen for free at anchor.fm. That's our free listening um, site that we use to actually post the pod, as well as Radio Public and Pocket Casts. We're still working on getting on iTunes and everything like that. Uh, Just stay tuned. That'll probably happen within the next couple of weeks as the show grows and gets thrown on there so make sure to subscribe leave any ratings and reviews that you can follow us on twitter myself at zach underscore goodall graham at graham marsh uf and most importantly GatorMaven.io. dot uh io you can find us at gator maven si on twitter we'll catch up with you guys next week as we get ready to preview florida versus ut martin 